Welcome to Farm On, the podcast. I'm Joe Phillips. I teach children how to farm here in Chicago, and people often ask me, how did you get started in this? Uh, What's your training? Uh, Basically, how are you qualified to do this work? And I like to tell people that I'm always learning, and I do that by listening. I listen to my students, and I listen to the land. I also like to listen to much smarter, wiser people who have done this work much longer than I have. And today's first episode of this podcast is an interview with someone who I've always looked at as a real uh, wise elder in this field. And I didn't have to climb up on a mountaintop to uh, find this guru of urban farming. In fact, all I had to do was go right down Division Street a few blocks to the site called City Farm which is part of this vast network called the Resource Center. And it's all headed up by a man named Ken Dunn. Uh, Shaking hands with Ken Dunn is like shaking hands with a tree. Partly because his hands are the hardened consistency of leather that's been left out in the sun way too long. Uh, His hands are always busy doing the actual work of farming, uh, making repairs on an ancient tractor that sits on the site, or driving a 10-wheel diesel rig around to pick up organic waste from restaurants to turn back into compost. Uh, One of the things that's amazing about Ken is that he's pushing 80 years old, so to do this work, which is so taxing on one's body, um, and to have the stamina that he has at his age is is quite a sight to behold, but also his mind and his intellect and his uh, compassion for people really comes through um, when you sit down and talk with him, and you realize right away uh, that he's someone who is a deep thinker, a philosopher. In fact, he um, uh, nearly completed a PhD in philosophy at the University of Chicago that he talks about in this interview. And also, I like to think that he has a spiritual foundation to his work that comes from his roots at a Mennonite farm in Kansas. Specifically, how do we as people rebuild our cities in a way that they can survive into the future and provide for people in a fair way? And so um, I went to City Farm. Uh, We didn't have a good spot to record, so instead we crammed into the front cab of a delivery truck in the middle of summer. It was very hot but he was very patient and um, we had a good talk. So here's Ken. I hope you enjoy it. Um, And let's just begin uh, where we all need to start focusing. Those of us alive today face a challenge never before faced by humanity. Our ingenuity and creativity has created systems that will be the demise of life on this planet that we depend on. So it's up to us to intervene where possible in mechanisms gone wrong and set them right. And I think we have to start our thinking about this from where did human life start? It started first by just taking care of basic needs, food and shelter. Hunting and gathering, of course, was the first. But I like to imagine agriculture began when a group of nomadic raiders uh, on horseback uh, used to uh, finding something rich, uh, trampling it as they grabbed what they could and moved on, said, this is a nice place. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we took care of it, whether it would take care of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. If we take care of our planet, 
No, take care of our minute local place. That local place will take care of us. That is, everything a human need needs can be found in the local place. So here we're going against the globalized um, mass media where we get our music from uh, world stars, um, not our friends and ourselves who produce music. We get our sport from the same uh, stars who might not be role models or uh, whose skills might not be approachable by any of us. We got to drop the international model of well-being and find well-being in our local place. Mm -hmm. And I think civilization started with the first culture, which is agriculture, that thing they hit upon when they decided they would stay the winter in a place and decided they could keep caring for it and stay forever in that place. And so we need to do the same with our local place and let's start by we, what we need. We need meaning in our community, we need jobs in our community, we need food, and we need hope. There's a quote um, that I picked up on one of your many um, interviews that you've done over the years, and you said a society must be judged by how well it uses its resources, not by any other standard. Understanding resources is understanding what is occurring within a society. Um, and when I first read that, I thought that seems, uh, uh, it seems so rigid to say that not by any other standard, but really if you broaden your uh, understanding of what resources really are, then it starts to make sense. And when I look at what you're doing and what you have been doing for the last almost half a decade, you mentioned it just now that so much of it is connected to people and that the resources and the growing and the, the food aspect, which is really what I wanted to focus on today, is, is the farm itself. As you s said in, an, in your mission statement, um, we need to create an alternative to using and discarding resources of turning our backs on people. How, how do the needs of people drive your work at, let's just use City Farm as an example. Well, um, we as society are quite critical of slavery in past civilization and even in our local history. But the conditions of poverty uh, may or may not have been in slavery as much as they are in the present economic structure that encourages uh, wealth taking, which then results in wide-scale poverty. We just have to be done with that cycle because that world is not sustainable. The, uh, the realization that uh, it uh, is an improper division in society is widespread now that we have uh, better communication and we cannot try to keep the lid on it because it won't work. Mm -hmm. We have to get at the root. How do we share the benefits of living on this planet with all citizens of this planet. And we should include uh, future generations, our own children and the children of others. Let's prepare a planet for continual high quality existence. And that's jobs and hope for everyone. As you were talking right now, it made me think about um, a lot of people are thinking the way that you're thinking. And a lot of people are intellectualizing these problems and looking at them systemically and writing about them and achieving PhDs and but I think one thing that fascinates me about you Ken is that you you seem to do it try it and then ask for permission later from whoever it is that seems to dictate how city structures are put together how um, municipalities, how land is owned or used. There was a f former alderman who said, Ken just tells it the way it is, but he doesn't worry about whether, whether or not it's going to hurt somebody's feelings because he's absolutely right. And in another uh, time you said, um, this was in regards to working on the south side on what are called soft sites, uh, land that's kind of fallow or in between uh, uses. And you said there's something about being on the edge, something right about it, even if you can't articulate it. What is it that has driven you to just go out and do something and as an, sort of an experiment and then to sort of use that 
trying, that action part, as um, justification or a way to persuade the powers that be that this is an actual model for improving society as a whole? Well, it's my understanding of human intelligence is the ability, and we do this probably as humans more than other species, but we have the ability to uh, reflect on our actions and actually inform our actions on that reflection. And we're not being human if we just act habitually as always has been. We have to consider, are there better ways to meet this human need? So uh, that's, I think, a good model to think uh, there is no valid reflection or thought process that's not based on a real and actual action or event. Mm -hmm. And there's no real valid action or event if it's not based on some uh, reflection and thought. And so, if we enter into the world noticing what's right, preserving that, but noticing what's wrong, and actions that we can try out to see if it um, will uh, address that wrong. I think one time you called it thinking directly, and I, I see that in your work, it's like acting directly. Uh, I don't expect you to retell the same story again, but you, you tell the story that kind of the impetus of the resource center was responding to what you saw as a need in a, in a poor community in Chicago where there was a lot of garbage and a lot of glass and you in, basically employed the local out-of-work folks in the neighborhood to help you clean up the area, thereby um, getting some money for glass that was picked up and then you sort of, it sounds like you sort of accidentally um, became part of their lives as you sort of built this new economy with them. Um, but that idea of, of thinking and acting directly, um, there's something kind of punk rock about that. Would you, <laughs> would you consider yourself to be punk rock? Well, actually not following instructions is uh, a very important thing in human life or at least testing whether it's correct now when i came to the university of chicago uh it was uh somewhat isolated with uh, low-income communities on three sides and orientation was very clear your community ends at 61st on the south 47th at the north and Cottage Grove at the West. Mm -hmm. Stay within those borders and you're okay. Do not cross. Mm -hmm. And I actually came to the University of Chicago to investigate uh, and learn more, uh, understand more about social injustice and uh, problems facing the world. So I was immediately alerted that uh, that was problematic. So I started poking around in the forbidden areas, uh, just uh, quietly observing. And my immediate uh, impression after only a day or two of observing, there were children crying and parents unable to meet their needs. And I thought, okay, one of the fundamental things about humanity is that all religions and all communities have the notion that everybody at the table eats. You don't have something that is not universally available. And having a community of Hyde Park that was um, a wonderful um, intellectual learning environment that says, these are your borders, those are not your neighbors. No, treat your neighbor as your family, as uh, what all civilizations have done in the past. So I took it on myself to investigate why there was this lack of parity between the quality of life in Hyde Park and neighboring communities. And it led to the story of discovering that one could utilize the local resources to begin building jobs and community and a quality of life based on being uh, useful and productive in one's local space. And so those humble beginnings of that idea collecting 
trash with some of the locals around Hyde Park. Can you just give us some sense of the scale that that's turned into now? Like, for example, the recycling um, part, the recycling arm of the resource center. Can you just give us some kind of figure as to how much material you're recycling now? You know, I don't really have the uh, tonnage on the tip of my tongue, but the um, uh, we employ uh, 26 employees, and um, our annual budget is near $2 million a year. So it's grown into an em- enterprise that has provided employment and keeps uh, material out of the landfill. And the one thing we discovered along the way is... Um, many of us need a sense of recovery. And when our effort is focusing on uh, stopping waste of other people, we find that helping each other from wasting their lives is uh, a project very rewarding also. So uh, community recovery and personal recovery uh, can go hand in hand Mm -hmm. to build a sustainable uh, uh, local place. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, have you noticed any changes, not only in the environmental uh, recovery, as you said, of these areas, but what have you noticed in terms of um, educational opportunities or even with uh, crime reduction? Is that something that you've seen firsthand? or? Uh, I think uh, as soon as you get started in thinking of the ethical way of being on this planet, uh, you almost immediately are taken to the place of, is this sustainable? And I think we're saying we've got something going that is not. There's more and more conflict being bred. And I just had a conversation with um, a police officer in this past hour saying that um, our project seeks to provide opportunity in all communities so that even the kids can see a pathway to their skills being appreciated, developed, and becoming useful members of societies. And I suggested to the officers that our work in urban agriculture is a companion to their work in that uh, perhaps our work would be more successful in that conditions in many communities produce gang members and criminals faster than they can arrest them. Mm-hmm. Whereas a community where youth recognize their skills would be recognized and they could become useful and res- useful and respectable members of society, mm-hmm. it would be more useful to have a path toward uh, positive citizenship in all communities rather than a path to prison if they make a mistake. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wholeheartedly agreed. That's great. And I and I, I think it's worth mentioning, too, that the kind of skill development that you're talking about with working with the youth in an in a impoverished area is that when they work on a farm, they're able to do things with their hands and they see the result of that immediately. Like the, the, uh, the payoff is so close to their local community. And um, that seems to be a big part of your mission, too, that however you're working in a community it's there to serve that community not to sort of uh, sell to some of your high-end restaurants which you also do so there's kind of two sides to that economy that you're operating on and how does that tension play out in real life the expensive <laughs> the expensive food that you sell to um, Frontera Grill for example and sort of making things affordable and, and, and realistic for other populations to take advantage of? Well, let me just develop the model we have evolved over our 40 year of doing urban agriculture. And it's um, one of the goals, of course, is providing uh, jobs that you can raise uh, a family with. And those jobs should be uh, the uh, the People that live in a community should have a right to those jobs. And I think if I think you mentioned that you projected that you can create five jobs per acre, yeah. and Chicago has something like forty thousand vacant lots, which comes up to like ten thousand acres of available land. 
but is it that simple to, to, to convert that kind of space? Actually, some of those lots are 500-acre lots, and there are 40,000 vacant acres in the city. So uh, over these years, we've tested over 200 lots to see if it's uh, uh, free of contamination so it's safe to grow food. None of them were totally free of lead, arsenic, zinc, cadmium, atrazine. Uh, so we've determined we should not even attempt to grow food in soil we find in the city. So as an alternative, we've developed the system of sealing the soil. Some places we find a concrete found, uh, floor of a warehouse. We can put two foot of compost on that and the compost comes free of contamination because we source the uh, material that's composted as to be free of contamination. We don't accept uh, materials that we don't know the origin of. And so we, of course, test uh, the um, uh, compost we produce as is required by state and federal law and find that to be true. If you don't take in contaminated materials, you don't have contaminated compost. And I'm guessing you know the origin of your materials because you're actually picking it up yourself. Yes, and so the um, materials primarily come in a complete cycle. We sell produce to restaurants and they pay us to pick up their uh, food waste, which we compost, and as you said before, uh, it comes back to them as uh, produce they buy. We've developed a plan that is sustainable. First, that it's not uh, affected by the contamination of industrial cities, but also it produces an abundance of healthy crops because of the uh, two foot deep of compost. And it does this with uh, uh, only minimal irrigation. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, both Australia and France have funded uh, documentaries of our uh, sustainable urban growing hmm. because uh, Australia call, called 10 years ago and say, we know we're undergoing desertification. We've got to produce crops on any place we, where hmm. we have water and we don't have that much water. So hmm. we need to know about your uh, making urban uh, contaminated areas spaces to grow in and to grow in with minimal water usage. And are those documentaries uh, available for, for viewing? I mean, are those out? You know, I haven't followed up, but mm -hmm. I bet there is a way. Uh, the filmmakers said they were acting on government grants, and uh, I bet they are on the Internet somewhere, mm -hmm. although I don't think they've been seen in the United States because there is not that much distinction of mm -hmm. what we've developed for 40 years being utilized now. There's uh, a number of other very promising urban agriculture uh, projects, but they don't utilize the um, extra richness, which actually provides the 10 crops a year, which allows us to harvest $160,000 of produce every year from wow. our uh, single acre. That's an impressive uh, amount of, of output. And, and I wanted to point out, too, that... Um, this kind of drought that you're talking about in Australia, I mean, it just makes me realize that people tend to act whenever they feel like their livelihood is threatened. And, and when you realize that you're running out of water, you start to get pretty creative about how you're going to irrigate your food. Um, but when you think about the Great Lakes region, I mean, a lot of people are saying that the rate of growth around the Great Lakes and the way that water has been mismanaged over the last century or so, that is going to put us in that same spot. Or maybe we're starting to be in that same spot. So at what point does that kind of study become more relevant to where we are here, you know? Yeah. Uh, for those that would like to uh, implement some of these practices I mentioned, initially the rainfall uh, is uh, uh, totally absorbed in the compost. Compost actually is just organic matter and it continues to break down in the environment of 
soil bacteria, fungi, and other things, all positive. Uh, but after the first 10 years on a site, we have to put in a pump to pump out some of that water because uh, mm -hmm. it uh, is not that absorbent. Mm -hmm. um, it's evolving, and that we yeah. know after a 10-year stint, yeah. and we haven't had a 50-year stint, so we might learn more. Sure. But uh, I might add, um, this was all kind of common sense for me. I come from a uh, area of Kansas that's dry. Can we, can, if you don't mind, I want to back up a little bit there because you kind of transitioned into some of your farming background. And just to give uh, listeners kind of a sense of time and place, okay, you're talking about um, Kansas, southern Kansas? Um, south central Kansas. South central uh, Kansas. And if anybody has watched the Dust Bowl documentary or knows anything about the history of uh, rural America during the 1920s and 30s, then you know that that area was stricken with uh, one of the greatest natural disasters that uh, humankind has ever seen, and that's the Dust Bowl. Um, I grew up not far from there in northwestern Oklahoma, um, near the southern Kansas border, really close to kind of the epicenter of all that. And my family were traditionally farming people, very resilient people because of it too. But in my case, there was like a break where I was raised not around farming, but more in a conventional, modern kind of upbringing. And so I didn't really discover farming weirdly until I came to Chicago for myself. But you, on the other hand, you grew up in southern Kansas and it was a Mennonite community, right? Yes. And actually the Dust Bowl touched the farm that uh, I grew up on. My dad bought the farm when I was two, and I can remember it was, um, it was devastated, and had not been farmed since the Dust Bowl. Do you know what year he bought the farm in? Uh, 1943 or 40, 44, I think, 1944. At age two, I was running around in this huge sandbox and dad was planting uh, clover. And so there's where I learned the quality or the benefit of organic matter. He got patches of clover. Uh, clover started on this farm and the first two years, he just plowed the clover under and um, the, um, uh, there were from the WPA projects uh, windbreaks those windbreaks were all dead trees. Well, they were actually sand dunes. Where the windbreak had been, the dust stopped there more than they did in the field, so that they were sand dunes 20 and 30 feet high. Wow. And I worked uh, with my dad most of my childhood. Any siblings around? Yeah, I had an older brother and a younger brother that we worked together. We excavated these windbreaks and spread the uh, sand um, back out onto the farm. And uh, so the Dust Bowl returned to fertile farmland because of the organic matter. And so my dad gave me the example of recovering barren land by compost. And from the experience of bottom land, which had a clay seal down two or three feet deep, I knew that you could go a summer without rainfall and still have a good crop. Mm -hmm. So I just dropped those two uh, things together for urban agriculture. Is it common for Mennonites to leave their community and go off and start some, some sort of social action in uh, an urban area? Um, not that. Um, I actually grew up hearing but didn't really understand it well the Mennonites have always moved to an area which was more acceptable to their lifestyle that happened through Germany through Russia eventually to the United States and then even west in the United States and um, so that's actually what took me to Brazil I thought I was myself deciding I didn't want to be part of a corrupted industrial society and would start fresh in the Brazilian Amazon. 
I later learned our people have done that throughout history. The Mennonite people, you mean? Yes. And so um, what age were you when you kind of looked around and you thought, I need to experience something completely outside of my my normal surroundings and, and you decided to join the Peace Corps? Well, actually, I think I made that decision when I was about 10. We had a loan to own the farm. Banks require payment every year and you don't go in saying, sorry, there was a drought this year, no payment. So we put in irrigation and more debt. And um, to service that debt, we slipped into um, herbicides and pesticides to protect our crops so we could pay that debt. And um, I was uncomfortable with this, but uh, our community, like many um, small communities, wasn't governed by uh, a hierarchy, but the farmers themselves decided what benefited the plants and animals and the well-being of the community. So our community was slipping into um, uh, irrigation and uh, herbicides and pesticides. One day when I was mixing a uh, pesticide in a tank uh, mounted on the back of our tractor, a neighbor came into the yard, started talking, and at those days you only had powder you would mix in water for the uh, 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 pesticide, insecticide. Mm -hmm. And um, I had the uh, long rubber gloves, respirator mask, and uh, a paddle to do the mixing. Real comfortable in Kansas in the summer. (laughs) When hot, not good. Uh, so I was doing it the right way as uh, on the instructions. Neighbor came in, we're talking a bit. Without me having a second uh, chance to stop him, he reached right into the tank and began with his hand breaking up the powder. It's like powdered milk. It's hard for the globules to break down and become mixed. And I said, no, you can't do that. And he said, no, I've been doing this uh, uh, last year in this and I'm not it's not affecting me mm-hmm. and right then I knew that I knew something he didn't uh, he was going by the old school if the stove is hot you feel it you withdraw your hand if the chemical is uh, dangerous you might not experience it for years and so I decided that something was going wrong we didn't have instincts appropriate to the world that was coming And so I decided that I would get the best education I could to understand how we can start being responsible with these new techniques and know which new techniques are responsible techniques and not just uh, follow the economic pressures. And so I decided I would get a good education. After a BA, I had decided that um, an industrialized country never could be have its practices dictated by reason. But we were so trapped in systems inappropriate, I sought out a location in the Amazon of Brazil to be away from industrial society. At some point, so you learned something about sustainable agriculture while you were in Brazil. First I learned to get rid of my pride before going to this uh, 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 slash-and-burn agrarian community in the Brazilian Amazon, I had my ideas what we would do, and uh, so I packed away the best seeds available, corn and uh, wheat and... uh, Okay, so you brought those from your farming community. Yeah. And how old were you when you uh, went off to Brazil? Well, I just got a BA, uh, Mm -hmm. so I must have been 19 or 20. Um, So, uh, no, 21. So you thought you knew something. Yeah, and I said, uh, uh, I'll plant here and we'll have a comparison. Well, the corn came up and got at least a foot and a half tall before it tasseled Mm -hmm. and uh, went to seed as their corn was uh, eight or ten foot tall. And I first thought, oh my gosh, they switched on me. (laughs) And then I'm thinking, and then I looked at their corn. No, it was their corn. The kernels (laughs) was their corn. Uh, Seeds are very Uh, Mm climate-specific. You can't take uh, 
a seed that does well in the amount of sunlight and the temperature that we had uh, to a totally different environment. Somebody was telling me about potatoes in places like Peru, where there's different potatoes in in various villages have their own potatoes because the microclimates change so much from village to village. Uh, I also learned uh, a couple other things. Community is better uh, back with the horses rather than with the machines. So we did all of our work by hand and with uh, what interrupted that, by the way, was the Bailing Brasilia Highway passed within a couple miles of the chip place I had chosen as most remote from industrial civilization. And what is that? Is it a giant highway in Brazil or something, a famous highway? So it was the highway that connected Brasilia with the northeast. It cut through the center of the Amazon. And at first I cheered when uh, heavy rains would wash out their uh, uh, bridges and it become impassable. But I understood the machinery they were throwing into it that um, this was no longer the uh, uh, away from industrial society. The horses and the manpower was uh, becoming kind of an antiquity. Yeah, and so had to have another stint of education. I found a philosopher I chose to work with in Richard McKeon at the University of Chicago who was really uh, saying philosophy is a systematic way of investigating and hopefully bringing some solutions to our emerging issues. Do you think think he also thought that in order to bring about those solutions, you need to be climbing around in dumpsters and sorting out food by hand yourself? Well, he was very much in favor of uh, uh, learning by doing. Don't read something and then take that as true and implement it. have some direct experience wherever you uh, want to uh, have a uh, an effect. So when you started your uh, your PhD was was in philosophy the, that you started with with uh, Richard McKeon, you said. Yeah, the PhD was resources and discontent, and rather than our heroes' approach to history, that there are heroes that shaped history throughout uh, the ages, and then there were the faults of each civilization and we've gotten rid of them like slavery uh, if you look more deeply each uh, each civilization have had its stimulation of creative ideas and quality civilization and has had its uh, lapses in slavery and finding new ways to enslave population to exclude them from the bounty of our planet mm-hmm. so he, uh, re- the dissertation was that um, let's not play ourselves as the heroes. Let's look at our own uh, failings. And the business of humanity is to not try to have everything for yourself because it's our nature to enjoy shared pleasures more than single pleasures. If you were the only human being on earth that had a good diet, uh, where would your enjoyment be? Who would play music with you and um, uh, write poems with you? Mm-hmm. Let's focus on local place and let's have everything that we need generated in that local place. Mm-hmm. Let's have our music, our sport, uh, even our ideas generated in that local place. What is it that we could do to improve the quality of life of this community in this local place? It kind of makes me want to step into kind of a political sphere, if we could, for a second. And when I hear you say that, I think of small government. But I feel like the tendency, the trend towards this sort of liberal idea of globalization, being globally minded, seems to me like it's kind of distorted this idea of maintaining a healthy, local, sustainable society that you're talking about. That to think globally is to also kind of embrace this um, global economy and all of the waste and human suffering that goes along with that. Where does that put you? And Do you think about politics in that way? Do you try to engage in it? Or do you just feel like you're too busy working the land? I'm... Uh, 
reminded of what Malcolm X mentioned in solving the modern problem of rich and poor, uh, the division between uh, affluent uh, peoples and uh, minority communities, we needn't try to think of making the minority community imitate the affluent community. We together must find a better way of being in the world. And uh, Martin Luther King was very clear. We've got to find something better than capitalism. There, we don't uh, need to try to destroy and trash existing institutions, but any institution that has stuck around much beyond its effective phase, as capitalism has, we've got to do better. And capitalism actually has endangered our, uh, the survivability of our planet and the survivability of the communities of peoples on our planet. So we can just look directly. What would the economy look like in this community that would not be uh, killing this community or impoverishing this community? Or what would the... Um, uh, what would we do to enrich the life of each person? What if we had an economy as if an individual place and the individual people that live in that place were the only thing that mattered? And that we can do without uh, destroying uh, global capitalism or any political or religious scheme. We can work alongside just figuring out what would be best for the well-being of this population using the resources of this place. It's interesting because you're sort of differentiating between a very um, confrontational kind of radical action and, and, a, and one that's more working in tandem with the, the, the schemas that already exist. And it makes me think of the idea of a two-tiered food system what is a two-tiered food system and how does it work within, with the resource center? Yeah, back to the question you sort of asked and I didn't get around to before. Our product, uh, half or more, goes to high-end restaurants who pay quite well because it is very nutritious. They recognize the flavor of their dishes come better because our plants don't search for their nutrition and human taste buds pick up nutrition as desirable flavor. So we got something good working for us there. We get a lot of money for the product at restaurants. But that same product is sold in our local communities on a sliding scale. And the example I often give to a new employee as uh, experience I had when we were starting a farmer's market in Washington Park, um, a homeless shelter running the farm, and the guy says to me, is uh, a lady was walking up with a dollar in each hand, what do you mean by sliding scale? So the elderly lady with a dollar in her hand says, how many tomatoes do I get with this dollar? Um, and I said, I think this lady uh, needs uh, half a dozen tomatoes. Um, we were then selling tomatoes to uh, high-end restaurants for three fifty a pound. The tomatoes being a pound each, she should have got uh, less than a third of a tomato. In fact, uh, she got a half a dozen tomatoes. And the thinking is the jobs from this economy belong in this local space. The product of this economy belong in this local space. And here we had an elderly lady who probably was not only feeding herself, but maybe even some grandchildren and neighbors mm -hmm. from what she uh, uh, could get with her dollar. So she got half a dozen tomatoes. And so this is how we can get beyond capitalism, a money economy. The business of life is not accumulating value, but distributing value. And that's where human value comes from. And, you know, most people don't understand how a family table can be an alternative to a capitalist system. Uh, restaurants know that the ambient of the restaurant, the environment, contributes a lot to your appreciation of the food. And a family meal uh, uh, accumulates a lot from it having been um, grown together, um, plant, uh, 
tended together, uh, harvested together, prepared together, and even cleaned up afterwards together. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot more pleasure in a meal with this uh, uh, precursor activity of producing the food and preparing it. Compare that to rushing here to there to uh, meet the demands of being a global citizen. I work in education and I'm an urban farmer, so my job is to educate kids how to grow their own food. I'm often thinking about the reality of families' lives right now and how when I was raised, we had breakfast together as a family every morning, uh, whether I liked it or not, and we had dinner together every night as a family. and. That was it. We just ate and we talked. People talk about the kitchen tables being like, that's your therapy group, you know? That's where you rejuvenate and you restore yourself every day so that you can maintain your humanity. And then I heard a quote recently that a mom said that that homework has become dinner time, that the demands of keeping up with the pace of society and all the work that goes into that has kind of replaced dinner time. Um, the family time together, I think, around food can never be replaced because you're meeting basic human needs and everybody sees the value and the pleasure in that. And the place to introduce a new idea or investigate a troubled area is in moments of pleasure. When we're having an enjoyable time together, do we bring up, um, son, do you want to take on a new responsibility today? Mm -hmm. You can start taking care of that entire chicken shed. Um, and at first you're disappointed and then, oh my gosh, I'm being welcomed into this community and I myself will sometime be head of a household, proud of my family and my farm. It makes me want to ask about you because you have a son, is that right? A I have uh, five children oh. and um, uh, a son in high school, and um, we have wonderful discussions together. <laughs> I'm sure you do. And so what's your oldest and what's your youngest? What's the range? Uh, I have three uh, children in their 30s okay. and a 15-year-old and 11-year-old. And... Um have any or all of them carried on some of these ideas into their life? I mean, they might not be farmers or recyclers, but uh, how do you see that playing out in their lives? Well, the older children, one does live on a farm raising a family. Um, another is uh, a um, uh, landscaper working with plants, and the third is a chef. Um, my two younger children haven't taken up jobs yet. Um, but um, th the one thing that uh, kind of is behind all that we're talking about now is I think mistakenly many people think the business of life is to conserve energy. No, the business of life is to expend energy that is rewarding. So as you say, farming and gardening takes a lot of energy but the pleasure. And a good meal. Uh, if you grow it, harvest it, prepare it yourself, takes a lot of energy, but the pleasure is unmatchable. And what we need to do is invite people into these meals and uh, uh, be part of um, a school child's uh, day. You're mentioning your school. Actually, uh, Rick Bayless and I uh, had a project that I believe you now continue. It was an entrepreneurial class for the seventh and eighth graders. And the class came to the farm three days a week, growing the product that they took back to the school and made lunches, nutritious, healthy lunches for the younger children at the school. And one of our criteria is that every teacher at the school would come to the farm with the children as if Everything you need to learn can be learned from uh, plants. And so geography, geology, um, mm -hmm. uh, history. mathematics, history. And I am firmly of the belief that 
um, when you see the relevance of a discipline, you can uh, uh, master that discipline much easier. I'm really glad you brought that up because it really kind of brings things around full circle. Um, as you mentioned, I work um, for a Montessori school. It's called Near North Montessori. And Rick Bayless, famous uh, chef here in Chicago, um, his children used to go to the school. Um, that was before my time, but the farm-to-table program that you're talking about is... It's so cool to hear the beginnings of it that that you experienced because now that's that's what we do. I I guess at the time you're talking about we didn't have a school farm, but now we do and it took about 7 or 8 years to get it going, but now all the food that we grow on our little quarter acre of land goes directly to the student-run restaurant called Sandwich Shop and the 7th and 8th graders make all the food from scratch. Um, all of it is certified organic by me. It's not certified certified organic by the by the people who make the labels, but all the composting that we do goes into it. And so, a lot of the ideas that you're talking about here, we do on our own little small scale. And the students really get to see that whole cycle that you mentioned. And not only that, but they understand the economics of it, and they understand the sustainability of it. So that's really cool. That's really neat to hear that all those years later that we're still kind of carrying on that tradition. So it's really nice to hear. Well, uh, it was great pleasure doing that. And um, uh, thank you for this conversation. Let's uh, do it again sometime. Yeah, I think it's a good place to wrap it up. So Ken, Don, thank you so much for taking time for this first episode of Farm On, the podcast. To hear more episodes featuring interviews with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of the food movement, and to read my essays on everything from zucchini to zen, visit dharmaonthefarm.com. Until next time, farm on.